for the rest of us, the gospel of action, Matthew chapter 12, excuse me, Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. It's Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life on earth before the crucifixion. By Friday afternoon, Jesus will be dead. On Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. People lined the road and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. On Monday, Jesus went into the temple and drove out the money changers, proclaiming, my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. Jesus also cursed a fig tree Um, as a living parable of the failure of the Jewish religion and the temple religious system. On Tuesday, Jesus was challenged and tested by the religious leaders of Israel at the temple. They wanted to know, by whose authority does he do these things? Jesus told them a parable uh, about tenets that made them very irate. They sought ways to have him arrested. They challenged him about paying taxes, and he said, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. He was questioned about the greatest commandment, and he told them that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord their God. And then he said, and the second one's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The religious leaders sought to trick Jesus on asking him about marriage and the resurrection. That's always going to be a trick question. And he embarrassed them in front of all the people. Now Jesus is going to turn the tables, and he has the hard question to ask. And so uh, we're in uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. And let's just read uh, verse 35 through 37. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. And so Jesus gives a riddle. And uh, he uses a riddle as a teaching device. He's going to talk to them about something that they already know, but there's something that they don't understand. And uh, so the question comes in 35, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Um, So this is something that his audience already believes. The people of Israel already believe this. And they believe, and it is true, and it is correct. Is it an accurate belief? And the religious leaders of Jesus' day already believe this. And his question is, why do teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Remember that Messiah means anointed one. Uh, the Messiah was God's chosen one. Messiah is in, uh, comes from a Hebrew word, Mashiach, and it means anointed one. And uh, in the Greek, the word is Christos. It means the anointed one. They're the same. Messiah and, the, and Christ are interchangeable. And it's a title. The Christ or the Messiah is a title. Uh, It refers to one special, unique person prophesied in the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfilled this in the New Testament. 
The Messiah would be a descendant of David. That's the point here. And one passage is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. We've seen this on several occasions. This is a prophecy, and it's given to David, the great king of Israel, around 1,000 B.C., about 1,000 years before Jesus. And uh, to David, God says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, meaning when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring, a descendant, to succeed you, or a son, your own flesh and blood, and I, God, will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is a very unique king. It is a king. He will be a king. Messiah will be a king. He will have a kingdom, and God, the Father, will establish that kingdom. This was a promise made to David. Israel, the Old Testament, the people of the Old Testament, understood David would have a descendant one day that would be great. He would be Messiah, okay? Um, Messiah would be God's appointed one. He will be a great king forever. Now, the dilemma, verses 36 and 37. Notice the words of Jesus. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, and he's quoting Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can, be his, how then can he be his son? So there's a little dilemma here, and we're going we're gonna to address that. But let me make a couple of observations. What are the implications of the words that Jesus just spoke? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, quote, Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus Christ is affirming that King David is the author of Psalm 110, verse 1. With, it's not just now a tradition. It is the authority of God, Jesus speaking, that he gives authority to Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus affirmed the inspiration of Psalm 110 under uh, the influence of the Holy Spirit which is also true of all the Bible. All I'm saying is Jesus lends tremendous credibility to the scriptures right here. It's not just a human author inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. And one of the amazing things, you know, we just take all this for granted, and maybe this doesn't interest you, but um, Jesus embraced all of the Old Testament scriptures that we have. The, the Old Testament scriptures were complete during the life of Jesus, and he embraced them all. He didn't embrace extra books, and there were no missing books. Jesus had the same Old Testament that we have, the very same Old Testament. The only uh, small difference would be things like how you collect them. We have 39 books in our Old Testament. The Jewish Old Testament only has 23. Is that a problem for you? Well, there's one book in the Old Testament called the 12 Minor Prophets. It's got 12 books. That kind of is going to reduce our number. And then there's a book called Samuel, and we have first and second. There's a book called Chronicles. Um, there's a book called Kings. So it starts to reduce the number pretty significantly. So 
Uh, remember now that the Jewish people understood that this passage, Psalm 110.1, referred to the Messiah. They already believed this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the, cl- the large crowd listened to him with delight. They were fascinated. They were impressed. They were wowed. They were amazed. So the question is, what is the dilemma? What is the dilemma? And we go back to Psalm 10, 110, verse 1. And um, it's actually the, it's the same quote. I wanted to go back to this because the original NIV has this a little bit different. But this is the new NIV. Here's what I wanted you to see. The Lord, the word for Lord is in all caps in some of your versions. In the New American Standard, in the original NIV, it's all caps. It means it's the name of God. It's Yahweh, or sometimes Jehovah. The Lord, the, our God, our the Father, the true and living God, the Lord says to my Lord. Who's my Lord? That's David's Lord, David is speaking, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool. So this dilemma is, how can David have a descendant that's going to be on his throne, and how can David's son also be his Lord? That's a problem. That's not easy to figure out. And his audience really does not have a clue how this could be. In fact, they've really never even thought about it. David, who lived about 1030 B.C., he dies around 960 B.C. How could the Messiah be his son and be his Lord? Jesus is going to be born, you know, in that first century. Uh, It was God who said that David's descendant, the Messiah, would sit at my right hand. The Messiah would sit at God the Father's right hand. Um, And I, God the Father, will make Messiah's enemies a footstool for his feet. So what kind of king is this? And what kind of kingdom is this? Jesus only asks the questions in the form of a riddle. And he wants them to think. He wants them to look at this text because this text has a lot of information in that they don't see yet. They understand correctly that Messiah will be a descendant of David. They assume that Messiah will be a political king just like David, maybe just greater, more powerful, more more blood, bigger sword. Uh, They don't understand who Messiah is, that he's greater than David. In fact, he is God's son. In fact, he is equal with the Father, and his position will be at the Father's right hand, and his kingdom will not not be of this world. It will be the kingdom of God. They don't see that. I wouldn't have either. I wouldn't have either. I I would have been totally clueless just like they would. Even the disciples don't get it yet. And that the kingdom begins when God starts to rule in your heart. 
That's what Jesus wanted them to start thinking about. Now we're going to switch gears in verses 30, 38 through 40. We have a really short passage today, but it just really changes from one section to another. A warning comes in verses 38 through 40. Uh, now Jesus is going to warn people about the religious leaders, verse 38, the problem of pride. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They, they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. In the first century, the teachers of the law, often Pharisees, you could be a teacher of a law and not be a Pharisee. Most uh, teachers of the law were. Pharisees were kind of a party, kind of a political, kind of a group to belong to. Um, when we talk about teacher of the law, we're talking about teaching the Old Testament. There are 613 commands in the Old Testament, and these teachers of the law were to be experts of that law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. They like to walk around in white robes. I mean, like as white as possible in the first century, which may not be really white compared to what you call white, but it was way different than everybody else. And it got a lot of attention. And it uh, was very impressive for them to appear and to walk through the crowd. In fact, um, if you were nearby when a teacher of the law came, you had to stand up and greet him and show him respect. Unless you were a skilled laborer who was working, you did not have a, a skilled laborer who was at work did not need to pause. But... Uh, otherwise, it was expected of you to stand up and show respect. And the teachers of the law enjoyed impressing people just by their appearance. Um, they loved when people showed them respect. And they were greeted with the term father, uh, master, rabbi. And they expected that. And it brought them great joy when they got this kind of attention. That's the problem of pride. Verse 39, the misuse of influence and these teachers of the law and have, they, have the most, they want the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. Uh, synagogue was a place of worship uh, for Old Testament saints, uh, sort of like a church, a gathering place of those who believed in the true and living God. And uh, the teachers of the law just loved to getting uh, the, the places of honor. And so that would be uh, at, the front of the, at the front of the synagogue building. And up front, they kept the scriptures in a cabinet. And uh, the scriptures were, you know, they didn't have Bibles or paperbacks out in the lobby. They had these major scrolls, and they were extremely important, and they had to be handled with care, and only a few people could handle them. And uh, the teachers of the law sat up front. And they looked out and over everybody. And it was a great position of honor. And they loved that. I remember that as a new pastor. I, when I got this job in Stoughton, Wisconsin, I got there and I found out that they have a platform up front. And up front they, have, they had what we called three huge throne chairs. And... Um, you know, they were made of oak and they were real tall and very ornate. And the pastor and the song leader and the scripture reader were supposed to sit in those chairs and face the congregation. So every Sunday I had to do that. And um, I, 
wasn't like my favorite thing to do. And over time, we stopped, we left the chairs up there vacant, hoping that nobody would notice. And a few months passed, and we removed the chairs. And uh, it, personally, I prefer to sit in a chair and come up from the congregation because I'm just one of you guys, you know, I'm, there's nothing special. But that's a practice, and it's a tradition, and it's not, it's not a wrong one. It can just elevate sort of... Um, the wrong thing, and it certainly uh, was a problem in the first century. And so they gave the most important seats in the synagogue and places of honors at, at guests, or, uh, pla- places of honor at banquets. And so, you know, a common practice in the first century was if you were going to have a big deal at your place, you should invite one of the Pharisees or teachers of the law to your house, and you should give them a place at your banquet table. And in fact, if you don't have one, there's something probably wrong. It's like important to have these people. And so a teacher of the law would come to your place and often there would be a trailing group of students or disciples that he would bring. You'd also have to feed them. But this was an important part of their culture and of their society. This is a little bit different than Christianity in the first century. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 reminds us, James tells us, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. Next slide. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my seat, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Christian Church wanted to take this on right away about uh, declaring equality among people and value among all people and not to, dis- not to discriminate because of wealth or position. Uh, in verse 40, the harm caused, the misuse. Um, in describing the teachers of the law, they say, uh, Jesus says in verse 40, they devour widows' houses for show and make lengthy prayers. And we don't know exactly how these teachers of the law devoured widows' houses. Um, Apparently, it was common in Jesus' day for religious leaders like this, for teachers to gain um, influence with important people and to seek favor like cash, financial support. And uh, apparently... Um, widows were an easy target for some of these leaders. Female with a little uh, inheritance or a little money, um, some of these leaders could uh, expect financial remuneration uh, using their influence uh, not, uh, not to honor God or to advance God's kingdom, but to use their influence for their own personal advantage for covetous reasons. And then they had this way of showing off their spirituality. They could cover it all with these great public prayers in the synagogue or at a banquet. They could stand and pray and look super spiritual and impressive. And the whole point of this is Jesus doesn't care for this. And we see the assessed punishment in verse 40. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus doesn't say what the punishment will be. And, but one must assume he means eternal destruction and the fires of hell. James chapter 3, verse 1, gives us an important reminder to the church. 
He says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That was the point that Jesus was making about the teachers of the law. They should be judged more strictly. They know more information. There's going to be a higher standard for teachers. The same thing is true in the church. Same thing is true for me. There's higher standard for me. Not many should become teachers unless you face the higher standard. And um, hopefully this isn't about uh, eternal damnation, but this is about as a follower of Christ, I will stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, a place of judgment and evaluation for believers, and I will know what God thinks of my life and how I lived and what I taught. Come to the last section, verses 41 through 44, the uh, offering. And we find Jesus uh, moving now. He takes a break from teaching. He's been in the temple for a long period of time. And now he goes to the treasury. And he sits and he watches at the treasury in uh, verses, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money in the temple treasury. How would you like to have Jesus sitting uh, up here and, he's, and everybody has to come up and put their money in right before Jesus says he watches. Well, Jesus was taking a break here, and this takes place in the women's court in the temple. It's a, uh, women weren't allowed to go where, this is a more public area. Women weren't allowed to go where the, only the men could go. And um, there in this area where both men and women could be, there were 13 receptacles for free will offering, each one having a different offering. And verse 41 also says, uh, we see Jesus watching the rich give money. And verse 41, many rich people threw in large amounts. Um, We know from other scriptures that some people did this for show. It was a way to impress other people. Notice how much money I'm giving. You see how much noise this makes when I throw it in. You can kind of tell I'm a a heavy hitter. Uh, But we must also assume that there were truly godly people here who were seeking to be generous and were giving significant portions of their income they were rich, and after they gave significantly and generously, they were still rich. Verse 42, we see Jesus watching the poor woman give more. Verse 42, the poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. It'd be pretty, it's pretty hard to estimate what the value of those copper coins. That's the kind of thing we want to figure out. How much is that worth? Um, it was really small. It was the smallest coin in the first century Israel. Uh, so it's, it's very small. And uh, some have said it's less than a penny. It just depends on how you measure it. Because there's, there's a Greek way to measure it, and there's a Jewish way to measure, measure it, and there's a Roman way to measure it. So uh, it's a very, very small amount. And she puts this in. She put in two coins. Probably no one noticed except Jesus. And uh, verse forty. 3 and 44, Jesus is weighing the offering. He's putting it on the scales, and he weighs it. Not really, but that's the image here. Calling disciples to him, Jesus said. Uh, did you get that? This is a big deal for Jesus. The woman's just put in the two coins, very small amount. And Jesus says, okay, gang, come over here. Did you see that? This is important. Pay attention here. I want you to get this. 
Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Wow, I, wait a minute. It just Jesus, it was just those two rinky-dink little coins. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Uh, this is what Jesus wanted them to see. Uh, Jesus saw what had happened. And Jesus, Jesus measured it in God's currency. This woman had given the most. She gave it out of her poverty. The others gave out of abundance. Now, Jesus isn't mad at the other people who gave out of their abundance. He is just raising her up for her generosity. She gave all that she had. This was her free will offering. And by the way, that it says nothing about tithing. This is above what's required. Tithing would be required in the Old Testament. This is above. This is a free will offering. wasn't commanded. Um, now, she's just given all that she has, and she's back to zero. And what is she going to do? Well, I guess she's just going to have to trust God because she doesn't have anything left. She must trust God. God for her future. She has put her life into God's hands. This is what Jesus wanted his disciples to see. This is what Jesus would ask his disciples to do, is to put their life totally into God's hands. Jesus is just about to become the greatest example in putting his life totally into God's hands and commending his spirit to the Father going to give himself totally, all the way. And, and Jesus is asking his disciples, you, I want you to see this. This is total commitment, total dedication. Uh, we have a core value about generosity at the bridge. Uh, generosity is God's antidote for materialism. Generosity expresses the heart of God and a heart for God. It's exactly what this woman demonstrated. The heart of God, generosity, and a heart for God. So, have some lessons from this passage. And we're going to be done on time. Have some lessons. First of all, some people's view of Jesus is correct, but incomplete. Think about this. Some people's view of Jesus is correct, but incomplete. That's exactly the problem of Psalm 110, verse 1, when Jesus raised this question, how is it that uh, the Messiah can be David's son and David call him Lord? They understood accurately that Jesus would be a descendant of David. That they got, it was correct. They didn't get what it meant that Jesus would be David's Lord. And that that's going to, that's going to, really change who Messiah is. And he's going to be on the level of the Father. And they're not going to get that. You know, the same is true today. There are people who have a lot of information about Jesus. They know that uh, he's important. They know he's a great teacher. They've heard, a lot of people have heard that Jesus died on the cross. But they don't understand the implications. They don't understand that sometimes they even know that he's the Son of God. But they don't know what that means. They don't know that that means he is equal with the Father equal. He's not a, a subpar partner. He's equal. And what is the significance of that with the death of Jesus? 
on the cross. Well, the significance is Jesus' life is infinitely valuable. And he pays the penalty for all the sin. He's bigger than all the sin penalty of all the world for all time, forever. People don't get that. People have right information, but it's often incomplete. And one of the things we can do is help people. Sometimes we just assume people know way more than they do. And we need to help them know more about who Jesus is. And that's why taking the time to invest in conversations is really significant and really valuable. Um, A second lesson. Sometimes Christians are dazzled by the truth instead of being changed by the truth. Sometimes Christians are dazzled. The audience at the temple was dazzled by Jesus. They just loved to see him. Man, he, he wowed them. He, uh, he created these difficulties for the religious leaders and make the re- religious leaders look silly and embarrass them at times. This was cool. Um, and yet, some of those people that were amazed by his teaching are probably going to be in the crowd on Friday that say, crucify him, crucify him. Um, and so there's a danger just to be impressed by the truth. How much more can you learn? Well, how much more can you apply? How much more can you embrace in your life? Don't be a hearer only, but be a doer. In Mark chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, if you remember back a few weeks back, we encountered John the Baptist. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John, John the Baptist, and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. And so Herod kept John around just so he could be, listen and be amazed. He loved to hear John preach, and he loved to hear John teach. Just didn't know what to do with it. And Herodias is going to get the best of him and have John put to death before Herod's going to make up his mind. Sometimes Christians are dazzled by truth instead of being changed by truth. Let God change you with his truth. Thirdly, sometimes uh, we are uh, more concerned about looking good and being liked than we are about obeying Jesus. How about this for being practical? Sometimes we are more concerned about looking good and being liked. This was certainly true of the religious leaders in the first century. They thought it was cool to walk around and impress people by the way they dressed and to have all of the respect that was due them. Um, now, you may not wear a long flowing robe, or you may not care to, and you may not want the most important place at the banquet. But you know what? We like people to like us, don't we? Uh, we like people to think we look good. Sometimes, if we're honest, we're more concerned about what people think than what Jesus thinks. Fourth lesson. It's not the amount of the gift that matters to God, but the heart of the giver. It's not the amount of the gift that matters to God, but the heart of the giver. This is true. But some, you know what? Some people think that this lets them off the hook. Because this, you know, this, oh, this is cool. It's not the amount. It's the heart. Yeah. But some people think they don't have to give because it's about the heart. And uh, they've totally missed what Jesus taught. Uh, Jesus was impressed by the heart. He was impressed by the heart that gave everything. Um, 
This is not an excuse not to give unless you have nothing. Luke 6.38, this is what Jesus taught about giving. He said, give and it will be given to you. A, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured out into your lap. For with the measure you use it, you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus just wanted people to learn generosity and to be generous. Um, people who are stingy with God can expect God to be stingy with them. People who give to God can expect God to take care of them. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, another passage where Jesus taught about giving. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your, your heart will be also. That's what the woman did when she went into the treasury and she put in her two coins. She laid up treasure in heaven. And you know what? It way surpassed the treasure that the others gave. An important principle is for where your treasure is, there will your heart be, be also. Jesus doesn't want your heart to go to two places or three places. He wants you totally. 2 Corinthians 8, 7. The Apostle Paul writes, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you excel in this grace of giving. That's like a great suggestion, isn't it? See that you excel in this grace of giving. Um, I would just like to encourage you to be generous with God. I would like to encourage you to excel in the grace of giving and giving back to God. Um, I want to encourage you. Would you take some time today, this week, set a uh, aside some time with God and say, God, how can I excel in the grace of giving. What does he want you to do? That's just between you and God. Um, I, I read of an example of a man named um, Scott Lewis, and he attended a conference where Bill Bright was speaking. Bill Bright was the founder of Campus Crusade, as many of you know. And Bill Bright challenged the audience to give a million dollars to advance the kingdom of God. And Scott Lewis was sitting there, and Scott Lewis was a generous giver, and this was back uh, several years back. And uh, he went up and talked to Bill Bright afterward. How can anybody give a million dollars to advance the kingdom? And uh, so Bill asked him, well, how much do you give? And he said, well, I gave $17,000 last year. That was 35% of my income because he made less than $50,000. And Bill Bright said, next year, why don't you consider giving $50,000? And Scott Lewis said, I, I'm not, you didn't hear me. I, I don't even make $50,000. And so he went home, and he, Scott Lewis went home, and he and his wife talked, and they prayed. And they decided to ask God if they could give $50,000 the next year. On December 31st of that next year, they were able to give $50,000 to the work of the Lord. In 2001, he surpassed the million-dollar mark to giving to the work of the Lord. All I want to say here is 
Giving is by faith. And God wants us to live by faith, and he wants us to excel in our giving. Last passage is 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. Apostle Paul says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Do you think that's true? Do you think it's true? Each of you should give, if you're a follower of Christ, what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. God wants us to be generous. God wants you to decide to be generous. Um, God is looking for stingy people to become generous, and he loves cheerful givers. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, we just want to pause before you and um, think back to the passage where Jesus challenged people and with question about who he was, and he he uh, check, he questioned the motives of the religious leaders, and he applauded the generosity of a woman who expressed loving the Lord with all her heart. Father, I pray that you would uh, show us our motives. May our motives be pure. May we seek to apply the truth that we hear and the truth that we learn. May we grow in generosity. May we share the good news for Jesus' sake. Amen.